Welcome to Bethel Christian Fellowship. We are a house of prayer for all nations, and we're so glad you decided to tune in to us uh, today. My name is uh, Pastor Andrew Gross. I am the associate pastor here, and uh, you've caught us right in the middle of a series on the Psalms. And the Psalms are a great way to help us understand our bigger theme for the year, which is a year of the just king. We're trying to figure out as a church, in the middle of crazy pandemics and other crises, trying to figure out what does it mean to follow this just king? What does it mean to serve him? What does it mean to worship him? And uh, uh, the Psalms are a great way to do that. The Psalms, uh, in one way or another, they direct our hearts and our minds and our lives to the just king. So uh, this morning, I am going to dig into Psalm 51. Psalm 51. It is uh, a model of repentance. Now, if you haven't read Psalm 51 yet, I'm going to ask you to pause the video, take a minute to read it, and then restart the video. So go ahead if you haven't read Psalm 51. All right, so Psalm 51. A couple fun facts about it. It's one of the seven what are called penitential psalms, psalms that help us repent, uh, that are models of repentance, and Psalm 51 is probably the most famous of those. Interesting historical context, it's one of the few psalms where we know exactly why it was written. We know the exact situation. There's only a handful of psalms where the writer explains exactly uh, what was happening in their lives, and, and Psalm 51 records David, King David's response when he was confronted about his sin against Bathsheba and Bathsheba's husband Uriah. We won't go into the story right now. You can read that for yourself in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. But uh, this is a powerful psalm. I, I, I have to say, personally, it's been my model for repentance. You see, I was not born in a Christian family. I wasn't raised in the church. I didn't know anything about repentance. I didn't know anything about following God. And so uh, I, I found myself, as I was digging into the scripture, uh, as, a, as a new disciple of Christ, I found myself returning to this psalm over and over again because this psalm laid out the model for repentance so well. And guess what? I, I still find myself returning to this psalm again and again. And repentance is something really important for us to talk to, talk about uh, with each other in our current climate, in the middle of all the crises that we've been uh, facing in recent weeks and months. Uh, you know, I've, I've noticed there's a lot of talk among church people about how God is going to use all these crises and he's going to turn them around and he's going to do something spectacular like uh, bring a revival. Uh, and, and certainly God has done that kind of thing in the past. He'll take big crises, big problems, big challenges for society and he'll, he'll use those and uh, turn it around and bring about some kind of revival. And I sure hope he does. But, you know, that's actually kind of sort of a Christian fantasy, if you will, or a lot of empty talk if we're not also talking about repentance. Uh, you see, historically, if you look at all the 
revivals we've had in the past, there's never been a revival that doesn't start with repentance. Every revival that's ever been recorded in the history of Christianity has begun when the people of God go through an extended season of repenting. They're not out there trying to change society around them. They are examining themselves and searching themselves and repenting. And it's that that leads to a revival. And to be honest, can I be really honest with you guys? I haven't seen a lot of repenting so far among Christians in response to this crisis. Actually, what I've seen mostly is blame. A lot of finger pointing, a lot of those people made me do it, uh, that politician made me do it, uh, those people are driving me crazy. Uh, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of blaming. And blame, as we're going to get into in a, in, a, in a bit, blame is the exact opposite of repentance. Repentance is all about examining ourselves, what's going on inside of us first, before we point the finger at what other people are doing. And, you know, without repentance, we're not going to have the spiritual eyesight to see what God is doing. We're not going to even comprehend or be able to understand what God is up to, whether it's a revival or something else, <clears throat> if we haven't been going through a season of repentance. And without repentance, we won't have that inner strength for a revival. Revival is an all-consuming uh, season of time. Uh, it takes everything we've got, <clears throat> but we're not going to have the inner strength for that if we don't begin with repentance. And repentance is always a good thing, always a good way to respond in a crisis anyway, whether you're hoping for a revival or not. So why? You might ask, why, why would repentance always be a good response? Well, first of all, it's possible we may have contributed to some of the problems. We may have contributed to the crisis. Now, you might say, oh, you know, I, I'm certain I, I haven't done that. Well, maybe, maybe not. You won't really know until you go into the process of self-examination of, uh, that's part of repentance. Now, let's say we didn't have anything to do with the crisis, crises and the problems. Let's say there was nothing we did wrong. Well, we have to take a look at some of the examples throughout uh, ch church history and also throughout biblical history of people like the prophet Daniel, the prophet Nehemiah, the prophet Jeremiah. All of those individuals were personally blameless of any wrongdoing. But instead of trying to justify themselves, defend themselves, I didn't cause this, I didn't do that, they chose to identify with the people of God who actually were part of the problem, who had actually caused the problem through their own sinfulness. Uh, Daniel, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, and others, uh, they said, oh God, forgive us. Oh God, we repent, even though they were personally blameless. So that's, a, that's an important model we need to uh, pay attention to and repent anyways, whether or not we personally contributed. And in this year of the just king, this year when we're trying to figure out what does it mean to follow and serve and worship the just king, repentance is how we realign ourselves with his mission. Just like any king, any leader, God, the just king, has a mission. He has a purpose. He has an agenda. And 
repentance is how we align ourselves with that agenda. So repentance is, is always a good response to crises. And, and besides, there's so many other benefits. Uh, let's dig into the text and fi- figure out what some of those benefits are. First of all, there's a lot of personal benefits. If you look at verse 7, David asks for cleansing. When we go through the process of repentance, we often come out of that with that assurance that God has cleansed us of our sin. Verse 8, David asks for joy and for gladness. We often come out of the process of repentance with more joy and more gladness. Uh, Verse 9, David asks for his sin to be blotted out, and, and, and often it's during the process of repentance that uh, we ha- get that assurance that our sin has actually been taken care of, removed completely. Uh, verse 10 talks about uh, being pure in heart and steadfast. Uh, David asks that God would, would make him pure of heart and steadfast, and, and uh, there's nothing like a season of repentance uh, to purify our heart and to come out of that with a new steadfastness uh, in following God. Verse 11, David asks, uh, that he wouldn't be removed from God's presence. And, you know, uh, there's story after story uh, all through the whole history of the church uh, where that, that talks about uh, repentance leads to this uh, incredibly uh, vivid sense of God's presence, God with us. Verse 12, David asks to be sustained with a willing spirit. Uh, that's something we often gain when we're going through repentance. And uh, verse 14, David talks about how his blood guilt is, is canceled. Um, and, uh, and, and that's an assurance we get while we're going through repentance. And uh, verses 14 and, and 15, David talks about all these songs he's going to sing and all these praises he's going to give God. And uh, the, the, the singing of joyous songs, the singing of praise, uh, the shouting of praise, that, that comes out of a season of repentance. So there's a lot of personal benefits we get when we go through repentance. There's also a lot of interpersonal benefits that we get when we go through repentance. Verse 13, David says he's going to, as a result of his own repentance, he's going to go teach sinners the ways of God, and those sinners are going to turn back to God. So the repentance doesn't just end with him. The repentance kind of balloons out and touches many other people, and other people repent. Uh, and so there's these interpersonal benefits that happen when we repent. Uh, and then, in addition to interpersonal benefits, there's societal benefits. Verse 18, David talks about how Zion is going to be, he asks God to build it up and ask for it to be made prosperous. And, and in 19, he says there's going to be righteous sacrifices made. And uh, <clears throat> so the whole society is going to get built up and improved and, and, and bettered because of this one man's repentance. Imagine that. Imagine if uh, how, how our world would be different. You know, right now we're all crying out for a different world, a more just world, a, a, a better world. Uh, imagine if it started with us, with our own repentance, and how that would touch other people, and how that would touch our whole society if we did that. But I still got to ask the question, what is repentance exactly? What is true repentance? I, I haven't yet actually tried to tackle that. 
Well, there's a few things I know that it's not. I know that repentance is not just sorrow, and repentance is not just regret. Now, sorrow and regret might accompany our repentance. We might feel sad and we might feel regretful uh, during and as a result of a season of repentance, but sorrow and regret themselves aren't repentance. And, and the reason for that is, is actually pretty simple. <clears throat> a lot of times we can be sorry for sin or we can regret sin, not because the sin itself was so awful or because of the other people it hurt or because of God who it hurt. We can feel sad and regretful simply because we got caught. Or we can feel sad and regretful simply because we have to face the consequences now. We're in trouble now. All right? I'm, I'm sure you have known people, I'm, I know none of you watching this, but you've known other people, I'm sure, uh, who uh, shed a lot of tears when they were caught with something, but that didn't mean they actually repented. Another thing that repentance is not is it's not merely beating yourself up. A lot of people think that if they spend a good amount of time uh, yelling at themselves, angry at themselves, oh, I'm so stupid, and, and, and I can't believe I did that, and oh, I just I hate myself now. People think that if they spend a lot of time with self-loathing and self-hatred, that somehow that's repentance. Well, that's not repentance at all. In, in fact, it's a diversion from repentance. It, it, it makes you feel like you've repented when you've done nothing of the sort. And the reason for that is beating yourself up can actually be very self-serving. Some people beat themselves up because they're fishing for compliments. They're hoping other people can be like, oh, 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 no, 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 no. Or uh, someone who confronted them with a sin and, they, and, and you beat yourself up, they, there's a secret hope that the other person's going to see how you react. And they're like, oh, uh, I, I didn't know you were going to take it this badly. Um, I guess uh, just uh, oh, calm down. It's not that bad. Uh, I'm not that angry. Uh, so it can actually be a very manipulative technique. Not saying that everyone's trying to be ma manipulative when they beat themselves up, but beating yourself up isn't repentance. So what is repentance? What is true repentance? All right, let's, let's actually get at it now. Uh, we're going to dig into um, clues that David left us, and there, there's, there's uh, six elements of true repentance. And let's, let's get into these. In verse 4, David writes this. He's talking to God. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now that's interesting. That really made me pause first time I read that. Against you and you only, have I sinned? He's saying that to God. Now, you think about that for a minute. Think of all the people David damaged in this story. All the people he wronged and hurt. For sure, Bathsheba. And of course, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who he had murdered. And then David lied about it to cover it up. So I'm sure he lost some, uh, um, some of the motivation of his followers and his men when they discovered that he lied about it. And uh, the text doesn't say anything about this, but what about David's other wives? Uh, what did they think uh, when they found out that uh, Bathsheba, that he committed adultery with Bathsheba? So, uh, so he damaged a lot of people. But here, 
David says, it's against you and you only that I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's a very different way of thinking about the world, but uh, we don't do it at all anymore these days. But in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, when someone committed a crime, uh, it wasn't the, the crime itself wasn't just bad because of the damage that was done. The crime was bad because it was considered a personal insult against the king of the land. The king took it personally when somebody snatched another person's purse out on the street. The king thought it was damage to his own good name and his own reputation. Uh, and so the king was personally aggrieved when, there when, a, when a crime was committed in his land. And it's not how we think anymore, but that's how David was thinking. And he realized that, yes, there's all this other damage that's been done. But he realized the person who was truly offended was God. And that's the first element of true repentance. True repentance, see, in true repentance, you see sin's full horror. The full horror of sin isn't only the damage that happens to other people. The full horror of sin is that it violates God. God is the offended party. God is the one whose glory and good name and reputation have been dragged into the mud because of what we've done. And until we get that, we're not going to make very much progress in repentance. We're going we're to keep thinking of repentance as just feeling sorry or beating ourselves up. And we won't get anywhere close to true repentance. Okay, let's look at the next element. Um, stay with me in verse 4. The second part of verse 4, David writes, So you, God, are right in your verdict, and you're justified when you judge. Now, when we're caught, and if any of us have ever been, you know, dragged before a courtroom, um, you know, uh, Rarely do we plead guilty right away. And even if we do plead guilty, we're trying to get the best sentence possible. And, uh, and, and we're usually still defending ourselves, still justifying ourselves, still excusing ourselves. Uh, and, and even if the court rules against us, we're planning our appeal. <laughs> so, uh, but David didn't do that. David put down his self-defense and he acknowledged that God's justice was correct. So the second element of true repentance is to justify God's justice, to agree with and say, God, your justice, your sentence, your verdict, whatever you're going to say about this, it's actually right. And David was ready to do that. It took him a while to get there, took a confrontation with, with uh, Nathan the prophet, but he did it. He, he came to that point of saying, God, your sentence is right. David justified God's justice, and, and we do too if we're going to make progress in the process of repentance. Now, the third thing that David did, uh, we're going to look at the verses right around it, verses 3 and then 5. Verse 3 says this, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. In verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful at the time my mother conceived me. The third element that David did was that David fully owned his own part in his sin. And that's what we need to do. We need to fully own our own part in whatever the sin is. Now, you might, let's say there's some 
some uh, conflict you're having with a friend, and your, uh, let's say your friend is 70% responsible for that conflict. And so because your friend is 70% responsible, you, you kind of don't want to, uh, you know, well, it's it, the ball's in his court, I don't want to deal with it, you know, it's up to him to make amends. Uh, we still need to fully own our 30%, don't we? Even if it's only 30%. Now, now some of you might say, well, I only have, I'm only 1% responsible. Fine, maybe that's true. Own up to and take responsibility for your 1%. And that's what David did. He owned up to it in this passage. All right, let's keep going. And the fourth essence of true repentance, if you look with me in uh, verses 16 and 17, David writes something really interesting. He says, starting in 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. So David, uh, this fourth element of true repentance is that David realized that God is really after our heart. Now, David, probably the richest man in Israel, he, he... easily could have paid for the sacrifices that were required by the law that were supposed to atone for his sins. And, uh, and he knew that. He could do that. He could make sure those sacrifices were there. But he realized here that God was after something more than the outward um, handing over of these sacrifices. God was after the sacrifice of his heart. And the word that David uses to describe that here, a broken and contrite heart. Those words, broken and contrite, they're very powerful images. Uh, That's the image of a pot or um, some kind of glass or pottery um, being broken into so many pieces that it's absolutely beyond repair. There's no way, no hope of gluing it back together. It's just, it's shattered and useless now. And David knew that God didn't just want him to pay the money for, to put an animal on, uh, for sacrifice. God wanted David's heart, and he wanted to see how David's heart was being broken over his sinfulness. So that's the fourth element of true repentance. Now, the fifth element of true repentance is very important to understand. In uh, verse 6, David writes, You, God, desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. And then in verse 10, a similar idea, Created me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Here, David is committing himself to and asking for a changed life, a, a life that has turned around. David was going in this direction, Uh, with adultery and murder and lying, and he asked God for the grace to turn his life around, and and he did. He committed himself to a changed life. Now, this is the real test of true repentance. Uh, You know, a person uh, can cry a whole river of tears in apparent sorrow over their sin, but unless they are committing themselves to turning their lives around, there's no real proof that repentance has happened. Uh, 
uh, and so just an uh, example, let's say we've been lying. We haven't been telling the truth. We haven't been totally forthright. Uh, we're going in this direction. If we repent, if we truly repent, that means we're going to actually stop lying, turn our lives around, and we're going to start telling the truth and nothing but the truth. So uh, that's the real uh, test, if you will, of repentance. Well, <clears throat> there's one final element of true repentance in this text that I want to highlight, and it's possibly the most important one. So if you forget everything else, try to remember this one. The sixth element of true repentance, let's read it in verse 1. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. See, the sixth element that David did really well was that he flung himself at God's mercy. And that's what we're called to do too, to fling ourselves at God's mercy. See, David knew that God is a just king, that God sees everything. He knew there was no escaping God's righteous punishment or correction. He even justified God's justice and said, okay, God, whatever you want to do. And he was ready to accept it because he knew he deserved it. And then, but he, he did it all in the context of flinging himself at the mercy of God. And a lot of us are reluctant to do that because we're not totally sure there's going to be enough mercy there for us when we do that. That's, that's, uh, that's pretty common fear that there won't be that mercy. And David based his whole prayer on the mercy of God. He, he said, according to your unfailing love and according to the greatness of your compassion. God has compassion that's more vast than the ocean. And he has mercy an unfailing love that's, that's, that's bigger and more powerful than the greatest star in the universe. And God's willing to share that with us. Now, as an illustration of that, I want to wrap up this message with Luke chapter 7, a story from Jesus' life where, where Jesus says something really interesting about the mercy of God that should encourage all of us in a process of repentance to fling ourselves at the mercy of God. In Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, this is, this is what happens. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Don't you just love Jesus? <laughs> how he responds to everybody. Tell me, teacher, he said, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. 
Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose it was the one who had the bigger debt, forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, in this story, it wasn't the size of the woman's debt that was the obstacle. She definitely had the bigger debt, or at least that's what Simon the Pharisee thought. <laughs> Simon the Pharisee thought he must have a much smaller debt. Um, but Jesus made it clear that it wasn't the size of the debt that was the obstacle. The obstacle is that the Pharisee didn't think his debt was very big. And the Pharisee, because he, didn't, he thought his debt was so small, he didn't love very much, and he didn't go through a process of repenting from his former life and then serving the just king. But the woman, because she realized how big her debt was, she did go through a process of repentance, and she did serve the just king. She realigned herself. Even though she'd been living a sinful life, she realigned herself to serve the just king. And that's what you and I are invited to do. It, it begins by recognizing just how big our, our debt is, recognizing, as I said earlier, the full horror of sin, that it, is, that it violates God. Uh, it begins, uh, like this woman probably did, uh, justifying the justice of God, like David did, saying, God, whatever you do with me, it's, it's deserved, it's righteous, it's good. It's fully owning your own part. Uh, it's seeing that God is after your heart, not just the big expensive sacrifices. It's committing to turn your life around, like this woman did, like David did, and unlike this Pharisee. And ultimately, it's flinging yourself at the mercy of God, like this woman did. She knew that this Jesus could forgive her debt, even though it was so large. And to help us with this invitation, we're going to conclude by observing communion. In communion, this little piece of bread, it represents, symbolizes the body of Jesus that was broken to pay for the greatness of our debt. Jesus paid for our debt. It was so huge, but he paid for it with his own broken body. And Jesus symbolized, or we also take this juice as a symbol of Jesus' shed blood. This blood reminds us that Jesus poured out his own blood for the atonement of our sins. That's how he paid 
the debt. That's how he was able to excuse the debt, even though it was so great. So when we take communion, we have these very visible, tangible reminders that we too can fling ourselves at the mercy of God. That like David, we can say, have mercy on me, O God, o God according to your unfailing love, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. These remind us of that. So if you could join me in prayer, Heavenly Father, thank you that you died for us and your own body was broken for us so that you could pay that debt and excuse that debt, even though it was so large. And we recognize how awful and huge that debt really was. We, we recognize that it violated you, that you are the offended party. But because of the greatness of your compassion, because of how enormous your loving kindness is, you let your own body be broken and in, and in that way paid the price for us. We receive your body now in Jesus' name. And Lord, we are so grateful for the blood. We're so grateful that though our sins deserved our own blood to be extracted as penalty, you intervened and you shed your own blood instead. We receive the gift of your blood. In Jesus' name. Thank you.